Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue, the show that tells you all about what's real and what's fake in your favorite true crime dramas. So we're your hosts, Jess and Alice, and this week we watched Rosewood Season 2, Episode 6, titled Tree Toxin and Three Stories. So we're going to get into virtual autopsies, and we're going to talk about the Innocence Project toward the end, so let's get into it. So we start with Rosewood going to see Via at the precinct, and they're just having a, so their witty banter, their usual witty banter, and it gets interrupted by an investigator saying that they hit another dead end on one of the cases they're working on. Rosewood says he may have an idea for getting some new ideas on this case since they keep hitting a dead end. So then we cut to him and Via teaching a forensic pathology course at a medical school. Rosewood asks to sub for the usual professor for a few days, and they tell the students that they've hit a wall with their investigation. He goes on to say that it isn't just his job to say how the victim died, but also how they lived. A student says that how a victim lived shouldn't impact the autopsy, but Rosewood disagrees and says that how they lived often affects how they died and what will be seen at autopsy. Rosewood says that every voice matters and that he hates it when someone's voice gets silenced. And then he goes on to explain that their victim's name was Elena Santiago, and someone cut her life short. Rosewood says that all his cases stick with him, but this one in particular was hard because it was a child. So he says the odds are stacked against them because it's been several years since Elena was murdered. He pulls up the crime scene photos for the class, and we see Elena in what looks to be like a shallowly dug grave. And Via goes on to say that Elena's father is a Panamanian diplomat who married an American woman. They say that to reinvestigate the case, they would have to have exhumed Elena's body. And basically, we've talked about this, I think, before, but exhumation just means that they need to dig up the body to re-examine it. However, Elena's parents have said no to the exhumation, saying that Elena's death was years ago and that they've healed and moved on. Rosewood says that they just want to make sure there's no mistakes in his daughter's case, but the parents still refuse. So we see all this in like a flashback as he's telling the students about this and the dad is very upset that he even suggested and says it was a mistake to invite him into the home and basically throws him out. They don't want anything to do with reopening their daughter's case. So one of the students that's in the class as Rosewood is telling the story says he thinks the father is obviously guilty, but another student says that she doesn't see how a father could murder his own child. Via tells the student that the word on the street is that the father has a drug business, but Rosewood is quick to point out that they have no proof of that. One of the students suggests that maybe Elena found out something that she wasn't supposed to about the father's drug dealings, and that's how she ended up murdered. Or maybe she was into something on her own that got her killed. More students disagree with this, and then a whole debate starts. And Rosewood says that debate and passion will help them solve this case, and Via tells them that they're dividing them up into two teams to retrace the investigator's steps to see if there's anything that they missed. So they have Team Via and Team Rosewood. Team Via will be combing through every bit of evidence, and Team Rosewood will look back through Elena's body. Rosewood explains that since they can't get Elena's physical body, they scanned her in autopsy and the results will be given through a virtual 3D interactive replica of her body. And I just have to point out again, whenever we talk about Rosewood, his crazy gadgets that he just... All of the fun gadgets. He has everything. I know I just need to watch this show from start to finish. Like, where does he get his funding? Where does he afford? Be- it's because he's a private pathologist. So I guess he... They just... Just like is loaded with money to begin with. It's just... He just pulls all... Like, these are insane gadgets, though. I- and he has a whole staff that he has to pay, too. Yeah. Oh, gosh, can I be part of his staff? Like, I would love to work in a lab like this. Dude, for real. I feel like I was in the Batcave all the time. (laughs) 
Except like in Miami with some sunshine. <laughs> so like the opposite? <laughs> I think they're in Florida. Yeah, they're in Florida. They, they're they the Miami-Dade so, county. But with, it's just Batman with cool gadgets. But we will give this a green flag, even though it is crazy technology, because a vertopsy is a virtual alternative to a traditional autopsy conducted with scanning and imaging technology. So it's non-invasive and does not compromise the body. So it's less traumatic for the family members and does not violate religious traditions. Did you know that King Tut, they did a virtual autopsy on him? Yes. A few years ago? Yes. Oh, it was like 2016 that they did it. Yes, I remember reading about that. It's fascinating. I had, I looked it up when I was looking up a bunch about virtual autopsies, and I was reading this article about him, and they basically concluded that he was around 19, and they think that he had Kohler disease, which is a rare bone disorder, and because of that, they think mm-hmm. that through the scanning and everything of the body, they that he had a partially clubbed foot, so he wasn't really able to stand on it very well. It's so fascinating mm-hmm. what you can find out. It's like you have CT scanning, MRIs that they do. Mm-hmm. I also want to know how he brought all of this. Did the university have all of this tech with them? Because they have, or did he have to bring it in his own? Because they have her... It's like a screen, but it's like on a table. So it looks like you're looking down at a body on an autopsy table, but it's like an interactive touch screen. Did the, does the university, wherever these students are, have this? Or did Rosewood bring his own? That's a good question. I want to use one. It was super, super cool. So yeah, this technology does exist. <laughs> I wish our school had something like that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we should just bring that up to someone and be like, hey, if you watch the show Rosewood, you should get some of this stuff. You can get some good tips from here. <laughs> you get some of this stuff. So the, anyway, this technology does exist, so we'll give a green flag. Most of the students want to be on Rosewood's team, obviously, because they're medical students, so they want to be on the medical side of it. But they do split up like 50-50 between Rosewood and Bia. So Team Rosewood does their virtual autopsy and finds brain tissue with old ischemic damage. So ischemic means that the blood flow is restricted. And also that Elena had heavy ligature marks from repeated strangulation from a rope. And something that is noted in forensics is the positioning of the ligature or strangulation marks, which can help indicate whether the asphyxiation was of a suicidal nature or a homicidal nature. So in a homicidal strangulation, so someone else would be strangling another person obviously and so the marks would typically be lower on the neck whether or not they were like behind the person using some kind of rope or like standing in front of them using their own hands they would typically hold down lower on the neck closer to like maybe like the clavicle and whereas in a self-inflicted strangulation like a hanging the positioning of the ligature mark could be higher on the neck because if the body drops the weight of the body will pull the rope like higher up on the neck. So it'd be like almost right under the jaw. I did some research on this in grad school and it was like, (laughs) I know like way too much about positioning of (laughs) ligature marks. So yeah, my, my, um, I always say whenever I do research for the podcast that that's how I ended up on an FBI watch list, but it was really the research I did for my research paper in grad school because I was Googling like different kinds of strangulation. So I've been on a watch list for a while. (laughs) It's just gotten worse over the years. (laughs) It's just gotten worse with this podcast because they're like, damn, she's Googling crazy shit every week. (laughs) What is she doing? (laughs) So they also found several rib fractures, and they think that the strangulation deprived her of oxygen, which led to brain death, which led them to believe that she was brought to the brink of death repeatedly and then revived each time with CPR, resulting in the rib fractures. And we've talked about this a little bit before, especially in our last Harrow episode, 
And just a reminder, CPR injuries can include rib fractures as well as some sternal fractures. So we see that a lot in cases that have like had attempted resuscitation. You'll see like broken ribs, like even if it's like if they use like a Lucas device or even if they're just like powerful enough, the whole sternum can just have a giant fracture. You'll see like a like a circular mark in the middle of the chest, which is like super yeah. indicative of, oh, they had CPR done. Yeah. I remember when I first started, I was like, oh my God, what is this? And then you told me like, oh, that happens with CPR. And then now whenever I say it, I'm like, oh, CPR. Like, yeah, they're very common injuries in CPR. So Rosewood says it was a precise and brutal murder, which that the killer wanted to inflict pain, which will help them develop a psychological profile. So a psychological profile is exactly what it sounds like. And I'm sure many of you already are familiar with this. If you have seen and or read the book Mindhunter, which really brought this. Or watched Criminal Minds. Or Criminal Minds. Oh my God. That's the whole thing about Criminal Minds. Yeah. So it's a profile built to classify major personality and behavioral characteristics of someone based upon crimes that this person has committed. So Team Via cross-referenced Elena's inner circle with police interviews from the original case and says that the cop missed interviewing one friend named Jody Carvel, who was abroad when the murder happened. They think that she might have had some useful info on who might have done this to Elena. Rosewood says that he and Via already came to that conclusion and paid Jody Carvel a visit. So we see a flashback to Rosewood and Via talking to Jody and her saying that Elena never spoke about her father's work, but that Elena was desperate to spend time with him. Jody says Elena's father was emotionally distant and that she started playing soccer because her dad loved it. Via asked Jody about a reputation she had heard about Elena, Jody, and other girls on the soccer team that they were, quote, mean girls, but Jody denies this. Jody just says that they give constructive criticism to girls who needed it, which just sounds a lot like bullying to me. The way she said it. I know constructive criticism isn't always bullying, but the, you watch the way this grown woman is talking about, like, we just gave constructive criticism to girls who needed it. I'm like, you were a bully in high school. You were 100% a bully in high school. And Via reads her the same way. She's like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Definition of a mean girl. So Via asked Jody if she was ever jealous of Elena and if she ever tried to take Elena's spot as the quote Queen Bee. But Jody says no one could replace Elena because she was loved and feared. Damn, like that's she's like seventeen and she's like she was loved and feared. And I was nobody feared me at seventeen. So this is why Jody didn't question Elena when she let a girl named Misty onto the team. A girl who Jody says was one of those girls that they gave quote constructive criticism to. She's basically just like admitting to bullying this girl. Oh, hardly, yeah. We flash back to present day with Rosewood and Via talking to the class. They explain that Elena was a popular girl and this other girl named Misty was not. So one of the other students says that maybe Misty blackmailed her way into the cool kids circle. And another student says that popular students always have a secret. And then maybe Elena's secret is the one that got her killed. Another student says that they searched through Elena's emails and didn't see anything to mention a secret. But a different student found an itemized receipt with charges for prenatal vitamins. However, Elena's autopsy showed no evidence of pregnancy. So who were the prenatal vitamins for? So Team Rosewood looks back at the virtual autopsy and they find a partuition scar on Elena's pelvis and these are depressions, pits, or grooves at the bone pelvis. It was so small that it was missed the first time, so Elena was pregnant, just not at the time of death. The vitamins had been bought two months before her time of death, so now they have a new person of interest, the baby daddy. So Elena was dating a jock named Vaz Dura, and the students think that Elena was being blackmailed about her pregnancy, so she came clean to Vaz, but Vaz didn't want the baby. 
Rosewood and Via have already spoken to Vaz, and then we see another flashback of them interviewing him. He says he dated Elena on and off in high school and that he knew about her pregnancy. He says it wasn't easy for him to talk about it, which is why he never told the police about it in the first place during their original investigation. And he says Elena miscarried, and then a few months later, she dumped Vaz for an older guy. Vaz said he doesn't know a lot about the older guy, but that he does know that Misty liked this same guy. Flashback to present day, and some of the students think that Misty is the one that killed Elena because they were competing for the same guy, but another student points out that she doesn't think that Misty would be able to inflict the same injuries they say based on her height and her weight. And the students ask why Rosewood and Via haven't talked to Misty yet, which is when Rosewood then reveals that Misty is also dead. This is what I'm talking about with these shows. They, like, bury the lead. Like, why didn't they just tell them they were doing a case with two missing dead girls instead of them, like... Make it suspenseful. Making the students figure out who Misty is. And then they're like, let's go question Misty. And they're like, we can't she's dead (laughs) it's like last episode where they're like oh you didn't like this part well how about this (laughs) i know that's what i'm saying they always bury the lead and they're always like oh okay we're gonna hide the really cool thing until later (laughs) until and i know it's a tv thing because they gotta wait until you're in the episode a little bit more to have like a dramatic reveal it just makes me laugh every time i'm like there's no way in an actual investigation they wouldn't tell you about like two bodies they just (laughs) they tell you right away yeah two bodies were found (laughs) like they wouldn't hide it two bodies found two days between yeah yeah. they wouldn't hide it for a (laughs) dramatic effect but rosewood and his silly little gadgets he loves doing that so misty was taken two days after elena's body was found so rosewood thinks that they're now looking for a serial killer so this is the part that pissed me off a little bit because i told alice this at work today a serial killer is when you have confirmed three kills or more there's only two bodies right now Why is he a serial killer? Yeah, they're making some jumps. So we cut to Rosewood's private practice where they have Misty's body brought in and she was exhumed and he brings in the students to help with the examination. When they come in, they run into Misty's mother. They ask her to tell them more about Misty. She says Misty was special and that not everyone could turn their bully into their best friend like she had done with Elena. She says Misty understood that Elena caused pain because she was in pain and that the two girls bonded over having absent fathers. So the mother leaves and they go down to examine Misty's body to see if there's anything that Rose would miss during his own examination the first time around. And a red flag here, because as he's going to re-examine this body, I don't actually think that I saw a Y incision to begin with. I did not either. I had that noted. I was like, wouldn't she have gotten an autopsy? Yeah, she's, uh, what, like, 17? Yeah, for sure an autopsy. 17 in a, a homicide case. Yeah. Like, you're going to autopsy that. <laughs> like, you're not going to just, you're not going to external that one. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to give that one an autopsy. And also, it's been 10 years. So maybe, maybe she was embalmed. But again, like your body after 10 years is going to start to decompose and break down. And this body was just way too pale for a 10-year-old body. And I think that it, like, realistically, it would have been way darker in color and more decomposed, even if it did have supposed embalmed fluids in it. I thought that too, but one, I've never seen a body this late, like, after mm-hmm. after they had died. And I also have never seen a body that had been embalmed for that long. So I was like, I don't know what it looks like, but I had the same thought. I was like, I don't know if it would look like 
she looked fresh just like wrinkled yeah <laughs> and I'm like, she just looked like an elderly woman yeah she just looked like a little shriveled <laughs> like a little dried out a little i was shriveled like raisin i was like i don't know if this is how it would go but <laughs> i've never seen it but yeah i had the same thought so anyway via explains that missy's body was found in the woods and that it was raining that night so trace evidence is non non-existent the students are still able to see ligature marks, but they appear lighter than the ones on Elena, and they find horizontal cuts on Misty's hands. They look at her back and find multiple stab wounds there, and between her shoulders and blisters on, at the same locations. And the only common injury on both victims, Elena and Misty, are the ligature marks. So Team Rosewood thinks that maybe it isn't a serial killer, but Team Via thinks that Misty got away because her mother says that she was a fighter, and the stab wounds are at a downward angle and distributed randomly, suggesting that she was running when she got them. So it is possible to determine somebody's height based on the angle of the stab wound, and according to a Texas A&M article, after comparing the angle results with the height of an individual it was found that the height increased along with the bottom angle of the knife so there is a direct correlation between the height of an attacker and the angle the downward angle of a stab wound just for refreshing everyone's memory the difference between a stab wound and an incised wound is that a stab is deeper than it is long and a cut or incised wound is longer than it is deep god i love forensics right isn't that so cool? So, like, it's so cool. Like, I know all this already, but I love doing, like, reading for this podcast and just reading all the things you can figure out. And I'm just like, ah, oh, forensics is awesome. I love my job. I mean, like, obviously, like, I'm short. I'm five foot. So somebody, most people are taller than me. So you are going to have to come down with the knife and it would be at a steeper angle rather than someone being the same height as you. Are you the stabby or the stabber in this scenario i don't like either well, i would be the stabby well, don't be the stabby because everyone's taller than me no so that's that's how you would determine that you're a fighter my, my attacker's taller <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were like trying to indicate that you were trying to stab up at first and i was like wait if what? I, oh yeah if a shorter person is stabbing up then the the angle would be upward yeah back in the show misty was running away and this makes sense why her ligature marks were lighter, and so the killer never had a chance to strangle and resuscitate her over and over like they did with Elena. The students read over the autopsy report and theorize that since the girls were both found in the woods, that maybe they were kept in a cabin nearby. Via and Rosewood had already had the same thought, and the original investigators had searched the area, but they were looking in the wrong part of the woods. They had a flashback of just, like, people in the woods searching with flashlights. So Via and Rosewood are telling the students about this, and one student says that they think the blisters on Misty's back were from manganeal trees, which are indigenous to the woods but extremely toxic. So manganeal trees are considered poisonous, and their milky sap contains a chemical called forbal, which will generate a strong allergic reaction on the skin. Raindrops falling through the trees can cause blisters if they touch the skin, and smoke from burning wood from this tree can irritate your eyes. And they go on to say that standing under the tree during rainfall can cause blistering from the sap. Obviously, we just said that. So they think that Misty came into direct contact with this as she was running away. So they take some x-rays and noticed dense metaphyseal lines in Misty's arms, and these appear on x-ray as bone that is just more radiopaque. These were undetectable with an x-ray technology 10 years ago, but now that everything has advanced, 
these lines. And Rosewood has all the highest technology. Right. Rosewood has all this high tech. So these lines under x-ray indicate lead poisoning. And one way in today's age and time to confirm lead poisoning is a blood lead test. But you can also see it on x-ray. It's basically a lead band that you'll see. And it's exactly as it sounds. It's a band just with more density. So basically on the x-ray, if you have an x-ray of like your wrist, there's going to be a white band. So there's more density in that white band across the bone, and that's what they're talking about. That's crazy. They think that this could have been the result of being kept in an underground bunker. So we cut to Via and Rosewood in the woods of where this bunker may be. The students say that there are many abandoned bunkers for the Cuban Missile Crisis era in Florida, which is true. There are several underground bunkers on Pena Island, Florida, which were designed for use by JFK in the event of a nuclear war in the 1960s. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that either. I mean, that's cool though. So we see Via and Rosewood go down into one with the flashback and we see a soccer bag in the bunker that was from the same team that Elena and Misty played on. And flashing back to present day, Rosewood says that all the evidence they found points to a man who was convicted of the two murders, the girl's soccer coach, Gerald Kelly. Via goes on to say that he's been in prison for 10 years for the murders, but Rosewood family thinks he's innocent. Rosewood admits that he lost perspective on the case, and he's hoping the students can help him get it back. This is also a thing that I feel like they left out, that somebody had already been accused of the murder, and he's in prison. I guess I guess because, like, technically Rosewood wants, like, fresh eyes, so he doesn't want... But still, I have the same thought. Like, I'm like, wouldn't they have heard about this if they're going to school in this town? Well, I guess it was 10 years ago, so maybe not. But, like, yeah, I don't know. So... Back in the classroom, Rosewood and Via say that they are going to lay out a case against Gerald Kelly. So Via brings out the type of rope that was used to strangle the two victims, which matches the type of rope in Gerald's garage. A witness placed Gerald at the scene where Misty's body was discovered, and a student says that in 78% of overturned cases, mistaken or flawed identification was a critical component of the conviction. And we give this a green flag because the stat that we found said 75% of more than 230 exonerations of innocent men were convicted of crimes due to eyewitness misidentification. I've, like, there's so many, I've heard about this more and more like recently how like eyewitness testimony isn't as trustworthy as people people used to think it was like it used to be like oh well they saw you there so it must have been you and it's crazy and then I get I think too much about it and I'm like wow I can't trust anything that I see well yeah because like your adrenaline your mind like fills in blanks yeah your mind fills in blanks your adrenaline's pumping so maybe like you thought you saw something and you're like you're remembering wrongly Mm -hmm. and there's so many times where I'm like no I remember it was like this and then I'm wrong and I'm like whoa my mind is so weird I convinced myself that this was true so yeah it's crazy yeah so Rosewood says that Gerald also didn't have an alibi he said he was home alone so an FBI DNA expert came in and found the most damning evidence against Gerald a blood stain on Misty's jeans the lab said that they could only get a partial profile because of a low-level contaminant but the sample partially matched Gerald's A student points out that all of this evidence seems circumstantial, which is basically evidence of facts that the court of law draws conclusion from. Rosewood says that the DA said that Gerald abused women when he was younger and that this probably carried over into adulthood. And this is what the DA used to argue that he probably murdered Misty and Elena. 
Gerald had been charged with disturbing the peace at 16 and was accused of beating his girlfriend when he was 25, but those accusations were expunged when she recanted. And basically, expunged means to have everything completely erased from your record. And a student thinks that this is probably because Gerald threatened her to recant her statement, but another student quickly pipes up to say that there's no evidence to prove that he threatened anybody. But pointing out that he was just even accused of this, even though it was recanted, was enough for the DA to paint him as a violent and guilty man. The DA also linked the history of alleged violence against women to the disappearance of Gerald's own daughter, Michelle Kelly. Michelle was troubled and prone to petty theft and truancy, which means staying away from school without a good reason. And she ran away six months before the murders of Elena and Misty and was never seen again. Rosewood and Via show a video from Gerald's arrest and processing and ask the students what they think the police missed. A student points out that Gerald's lymph nodes look swollen, which could indicate an allergic reaction from the mold in the bunker. But another student is quick to point out that it could also be a sore throat or a cold. Which is true. How many times, like, I feel like that's one of the first symptoms I get when I'm, like, about to get sick is, like, my lymph nodes and, like, my throat, like, under my jaw, they get really puffy. And so if I feel those getting swollen, I'm like, oh, no, I got a cold coming on. So, like, when they said swollen lymph nodes, I was like, oh, he has a cold. And, like, someone was immediately like, no, it's an allergic reaction to the mold. I'm like, all right. Or a cold. (laughs) So the students also notice a redness in the whites of his eyes, which one student thinks points to Gerald being drunk. But Donna, who is Rosewood's mother and just happened to walk into the classroom, thinks it could be from crying from missing his daughter or from shock of being arrested. So this made me think of a funny and slightly embarrassing story. So when I was not this isn't a forensic related story. This is just an Alice was going through it story. And it made me think of this. So let's see. I was, I think I was a sophomore in college. I was 19. And... I was going through a breakup and it was a messy breakup. I was not dealing with it well. (laughs) And it had like just happened like the night before I had class. And so like, and it happened over the phone. It was awful. And I had spent the majority of the night crying and or not sleeping. And the next day I only had one class and I almost didn't go, but it was a smaller class where attendance was mandatory. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to drag myself out of bed and go to this class and then come back and mope in my bed and watch Gilmore Girls. But (laughs) so I went to class and I didn't even like look at myself in the mirror, but like I definitely had like puffy eyes. I had red eyes because I had just been crying. I wasn't sleeping and... I go to class and of course it was a day when they like split us up into groups and to do like a group project and I'm like I don't want to talk to anyone so I'm in this class I'm zoning out I'm not paying attention I'm tired I'm depressed I have these red puffy eyes and this one dude and he just kept like looking at me and like chuckling and eventually he spoke up and said something and he's like He's like, are you good? Like, are you good? How are you even here right now? And I thought he could tell I was, like, sad. And I was like, what do you mean? Hey, he's like, how much did you smoke? Oh, no. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? I was like, I don't smoke. He's like, how much did you take then? Because you look like, he's like, you are baked right now. And I, he literally said this. 
And, like, the whole group thought that I was just some stoner. Because, like, I didn't really talk to a lot of people in this class, so nobody really knew me that well. And they totally, they thought I was just, like, this stoner not contributing to the group project. <laughs> and then, so I found out that everybody thought this about me. This was, like, as this is happening. Like, he's telling me. He's telling me that he thought he thinks I'm high. And I'm sad. I'm sleep deprived. And so I just start... <laughs> This is so embarrassing. I start unloading and crying on this guy. And I'm like, no, I just had a a breakup over the phone last night. I didn't get any sleep. I'm just tired. I just don't want to be here. No, you're just sad. dude was just, like, mortified that he just, like, confronted me about being high. But I was just a poor 19-year-old girl going through a shitty breakup with a shitty guy. we i needless to say nobody spoke to me in that class thankfully it was towards the end of the semester so like i didn't really have to see those people again (laughs) you should have (laughs) skipped i should have but i didn't and now it's funny and i laugh about it and i actually ended up laughing about it like a week later because the breakup that i was sad about was one that needed to happen i was in it was a bad situation it's good that i'm out of it but like i (laughs) it was just so funny as soon as they brought up like in the show that the reds of his eyes and they're like uh, or like his the whites of his eyes were red they're like he's drunk i was like that was definitely like everybody in my spanish class was like she's high and i'm like nope i'm just sad <laughs> i'm just i'm just a real sad girl today girl you should have just skipped and took the l for the day <laughs> oh yeah i'm la- i laughed about it literally like a week later like me and my friends i was like oh my god my whole spanish class thinks i'm a stoner and nobody talks to me anymore and then they thought i was a stoner just sad <laughs> and then i had like a meltdown in class and now they don't talk to me oh no <laughs> they think i'm unstable oh well, yeah it's like 10 years later you can laugh about it <laughs> I know, I know. I never judge a book by its cover, guys. Like, maybe they're high, maybe they're sad. You never know. Maybe they're both. That's hilarious. Either way, unless they tell you, it's none of your business. <laughs> Don't confront the sad-looking 19-year-old girl in your class. <laughs> she will trauma dump on you real quick. Because she'll unload her life on you. So, yeah. There were a lot of reasons why Gerald's eyes might have been red and puffy. Just like there were a lot of reasons why my eyes could have been red and puffy. So, except it was just one reason. I was just sad. So, one student points out that he's really quiet and he thinks that an innocent man would be proclaiming his innocence. But Donna is quick to point out that Gerald knew he was being filmed and that anything he said could be used against him in a court of law. In the video, we also see blisters on Gerald's right forearm. And Rosewood says that Gerald claimed that he burned himself while cooking. One the student who is pursuing plastic surgery says that he knows skin and that those are not burns, those are blisters. Another student says that he thinks that they'll match the McNeil tree blisters that they found on Misty's body. And this would mean that Gerald was at the crime scene. Donna is not happy about this because she is a friend of Gerald's and is hoping that Rosewood will be able to find him innocent. And Rosewood says that he's done all he can for the case, but it looks like he's guilty. Donna asks rosewood to do one more thing go and ask gerald if he was in the woods that night she says that after that if rosewood is still convinced gerald committed these awful crimes that she will never mention gerald's name again rosewood agrees to do that so then we cut to rosewood and donna going to visit gerald in prison and rosewood asks him what he was doing the night misty was murdered and gerald sticks to his story that he was at home cooking dinner but Rosewood says that that isn't the complete story and goes on to say that the McAneel sap is very painful, which is why the growth of those trees is limited to a very certain area in the section of the woods. 
He pulls out pictures of the burns on Gerald's forearms from 10 years ago and asks if they are as painful as he hears McAneel's sap burns are. So this causes Gerald to confess that he was in the woods that night. And he says he kept it from Rosewood and his family and the police because being in the woods makes him seem guilty no matter what he was doing. And he says he was looking for his daughter in the woods. And he had just put up posters that week. And someone had called in a tip to say that they had seen a girl in the park that matched his daughter's description. He went out into the woods to find her. But he didn't find her. And he starts crying and apologizing for not telling them he was in the woods sooner. So the student that ended up pointing out Gerald's blisters comes to meet Rosewood at his practice. And he says that he knows he's the one that put Gerald at the scene of the crime, but something still doesn't sit right with him, and he doesn't think Gerald did it. He said that there weren't any scabs or wounds on Gerald, and it got this student thinking about where the blood stain on Misty's pants came from if Gerald wasn't bleeding. So what if the blood wasn't Gerald's? It was only a partial match with only half of the genetic indicators, which are genes or DNA sequences with a known location on a chromosome, and they can be used to identify people. And Rosewood points out that the forensics team from the FBI admitted that they had made an error in the fluid collection, which is why it was only a partial match. But the student argues that it could also be someone else's blood, which is another reason why it would be an incomplete match. So they compare the blood sample from Misty's genes to another blood sample, from Gerald's daughter, Michelle. So the hair sample that was found from the missing person's profile was an exact match for the blood on Misty's jeans, which is why the match was only half for Gerald, because it's her father. So it was the right family, but the wrong member. So how did Michelle's DNA get on Misty's jeans? Rosewood doesn't know, but he doesn't think that Gerald would kill his own daughter. So Via was able to get cell tower records from the night that Misty's body was discovered, and she found that Gerald received a call that night from an unregistered number, and the call was made from 30 miles away. So there is no way that the caller could have just seen Michelle in the woods like they claimed. She also ran the number against the EMPD call logs from that night, and someone called the desk sergeant about a body in the woods from the same number that called Gerald. So, someone lied to Gerald to get him into the woods, and then called the police so that they would find him at the scene of the crime. So, Gerald was framed, and Rosewood wants to figure out who and to get Gerald out. Rosewood goes to talk to Gerald and tells him that he thinks he's innocent. He says that he will go back through the evidence, and with the support from the EMPD, they will have available resources that they need to find out who Misty and Elena's killer really is. They've gotten everything they can from Misty's body, but Rosewood needs to look at Elena with his own eyes. And Rosewood thinks that because Elena's father won't consent to an exhumation, that means he's hiding something. Which I thought was a bit of a leap. Maybe he knows more about Rosewood, or knows more about Elena's father than he let on. But, like, some families just want to, like, let their loved one... Yeah, they want to, like, put it behind them. Yeah, some families really just don't want to, no pun intended, but dig up old wounds. Like, no... Like, Mm -hmm. so when he's like, yeah, I think he's hiding something. I was like, or he just like... When I was watching this, I was like, wow, he's so sus. I know. I thought the same thing. And then I was thinking about it after and I just said it now. And I'm like, or he just wants to let his daughter lie in peace and he doesn't want to keep bringing this up. Mm -hmm. And he thinks Gerald did it because the evidence does look suspicious. But Rosewood is showing us it's not. So Rosewood thinks that the key to Gerald's release is with Elena. He asked Gerald to think back to the days leading up to his arrest and to think about all the tiny details and who he spoke to because he thinks the real killer knows Gerald and knows his history and his relationship with Misty and Elena and used this in order to frame him. 
Rosewood thinks that the killer has been watching Gerald for a long time, and he promises he won't rest until they prove his innocence. And then we're left on a cliffhanger. And I did spoil it for myself when I Googled who the killer is, but I won't spoil it for you guys. But you can find it if you just Google it. <laughs> if you don't want to watch Rosewood. <laughs> if you don't have a Hulu subscription or you just don't want to watch it, you're impatient like me, you can just look it up. <laughs> it's underwhelming. It, it is a little underwhelming. According, like, I read a review of the episode, and they said that they were super excited at the start of the episode to find out who the killer was, and then it was a little underwhelming for them. I had to agree. But maybe if I watch it, I'd be impressed. Maybe we'll watch it for a future episode, so I won't spoil it. But this whole episode basically talked about and dealt with the theme of being wrongfully convicted, which made us think of something that hit the news recently earlier this year. A man named Maurice Hastings spent nearly four decades in a prison for a murder he did not commit and almost got the death penalty for it. He was found factually innocent in March 2023, and Maurice Hastings, he was imprisoned after the 1983 murder of Roberta Widermeyer, as well as two attempted murders. In 1983, Hastings was charged with special circumstance murder, and the DA initially sought the death penalty in the case. The trial resulted in a hung jury, and in 1988, Hastings was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Roberta Wittermeyer's murder occurred shortly after midnight on Sunday, June 19, 1983. She left her home in L.A. and told her husband, Billy, that she was going to the convenience store to buy nasal spray and pick up some cigarettes. She also had plans to meet a high school classmate named James Paxton, but did not tell Billy this. Paxton will later say that they never ended up meeting and Roberta never ended up coming back home. Her husband, Billy started frantically looking for his wife, and when he woke up that morning and found that she never returned home, he got a call from someone who said that they found Roberta's wallet in their front yard about eight miles from their home. Billy went to pick up the wallet and found that it was missing $500 in cash, and it was also missing her telephone calling card, which had her pin so that anyone with that card would be able to make calls. Wow, that's such an 80s thing. It is. And it ends up being, like, I did the reading on this case, it ends up being, like, the most damning piece of evidence that they could find. Which, like, for the 80s is, like, for nowadays, that'd be crazy to convict someone just on a calling card. So Billy filed a missing persons report with the LAPD, but was told to wait until she had been missing for 48 hours. By 9 a.m. that morning, Billy took it into his own hands and drove around with a neighbor to find Roberta. They spotted her car driving north and followed it a few blocks later, pulled up along the driver's side. Billy saw a black man wearing a black and white baseball cap bearing the letters LAPD, and Billy believed he was a police officer. He asked the man where the woman who owned that car was, and that is when Billy realized that this man was not a police officer. He claims the man turned and smiled and said she's down at 106 and Normandy, and then took off in his wife's car. Billy and the, and the neighbor chased the car, and after several twists and turns and going down side streets, the Cadillac came to a stop in an alley, and the driver turned around and fired several shots from a revolver. The bullet shattered the rear window of the Cadillac and went through the windshield of the car that Billy was in. Billy was hit with a bullet in his left temple. The neighbor, who was driving, sped away and took Billy to the hospital where he was taken into surgery to have the bullet fragments removed. At 1.15 a.m. on Monday, June 20th, 1983, police drove to the alley where Billy had chased down the driver of his wife's car. 
He saw smoke and discovered that the car was set on fire, and when the fire was put out, Roberta's body was found in the trunk with a single gunshot wound to the head, and a thirty-eight caliber bullet was found under her body. This gave me chills, because the car that he was chasing down, like, his wife's body was in the trunk the entire time Mm -hmm. that he was, like, chasing this car down. And, like, that, like, oh my god, I can't, like, that just, like, freaked me out when it was, like, revealed, like, oh, and she was in the trunk the whole time. I'm like, oh my god. I don't know why that detail just, like... No, right? Because, like, what if they, what if they did, like, stop the car? It's so spooky to me. Yeah. He was chasing this down, hoping to find out where his wife was, and his wife was there the whole time. She was just dead, and it's tragic. It's awful. So, shortly after this, several strange phone calls started coming in at the Wittermeyer house, and on July 18, 1983, a bill for Roberta's calling card arrived and showed 20 calls were made between June 21st and June 29th after her body was found, and police began interviewing recipients of the calls whose numbers appeared on the bill, and they learned that the person making the calls was a 29-year-old Maurice Hastings. None of the calls billed on the calling card were the ones made to the Wittermeyer house, and police tracked down Hastings and charged him with capital murder, robbery, and the attempted murder of Billy Wittermeyer and his neighbor, George Pinson. Can you imagine, like, the only evidence they have is that he used this calling card, which doesn't look great, but he wasn't even the one making the calls, the weird calls to the house. That's so strange. Like, It's super strange that all they convicted him was on was oh, he had this calling card. And I think the eyewitness, because I think they end up saying that it's the guy that they saw, but it's not. But yeah, he just had the calling. So I'm thinking the person who did it either just left the calling card somewhere and he picked it up and took it or sold it to someone. I don't know. And this Maurice was using it. But yeah, that's like, that's all they needed to convict him was this just having the calling card. I feel like that's not enough evidence. I know. Like, it was the 80s. That is not enough to fully commit somebody on murder. Like capital murder. And yeah. two attempted murders because he had the card. And it's like, that could have changed so many hands before it got to him, which is what just blew my mind when I was reading. I don't know if they had more. I did a little bit of reading, but I just, it seemed like to me that they just had him on the calling card and they're like, it must be you. And I'm like, how though? Right? Like maybe this guy didn't have enough money for a card himself. So he found this wallet and took the card. Yeah. God. Oh my God. 80s are wild. Mm-hmm. So at trial, Wittermeyer and Pinson both ID'd Hastings as the man they saw driving Roberta's car. But we know eyewitness accounts are not always something to be relied on. Mm-hmm. But no physical or forensic evidence linked Hastings to this crime. And the entirety of his imprisonment, Hastings claimed his innocence, which is what promoted the DA's office to launch an investigation. And in June of 2022, DNA testing from the Roberta Wittermeyer case from a rape kit that was taken at her autopsy was found to be a match for another person named Kenneth Packnett, who had already died in prison in 2020. Packnett was a convicted sex offender who was already serving 56 years for an unrelated kidnapped and rape case. The DA's office and the LA Innocence Project submitted a request to vacate Hastings' conviction and release him from prison, and in October 2022, LA County Superior Court Judge William C. Ryan approved the request and Hastings was freed. As of March 2023, 
his team had asked the judge to declare him factually innocent and clear his name finally. I just It's just wild. They had no physical or forensic evidence to link him to the scene of the crime, but just because he had the calling card and like two people said it was him, like that was enough to put him away for 40 years. I also feel, so like eyewitness accounts, you're recalling something and not fully remembering it because you want, just want somebody to like take the blame for what happened to your loved one right and like i'm not i'm not trying to blame the eyewitnesses what they went through was horrible like i mean freaking Mm -hmm. billy weidermeyer lost his wife and was shot in the same day like that's her horrific thing but like i is i feel like there's got to be some study somewhere and i don't want to just throw quotes out there but like your memory isn't as good in a trauma yeah yeah Yeah. you need more than just the memory to go Mm -hmm. and like fully convict somebody you need like right the memory plus x y and z yeah and it's crazy because like it was the 80s so they had this rape kit but they didn't have like dna testing all they could prove at the point was that she had been raped because there was the presence of semen but they didn't have like the DNA testing technology until like way later. Yeah, they couldn't compare it. Yeah, and I think for a while, I think Hastings was like trying to get them to test the DNA. He's like, just test the DNA. You'll see it's not me. Like, but they like, because there's like a backlog of like testing rape kits, I think. Yeah. There was something that just like didn't speed the process along until way later. And he's in jail for 40 years for something he didn't do. That's like ruins his entire life. I know. And I hope like, so let's see, he was 29. 40 years if he's 69 now then he's out or should be like in his 60s now he's out like that's crazy i mean but that's what the whole like innocence project does and like that's what their mission is to like Mm -hmm. get any type of evidence that they can to help like exonerate innocent men and women out there right yeah because like we said the stat before it was like 75 percent of exonerated people mm-hmm. were based off of eyewitness testimony, which is not as reliable as we once thought it was. So the link to the Innocence Project will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more about it and see like what their website is all about. They do they do good work. To end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and one red flag. So in our opinion, this episode of Rosewood does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. But let us know what you think. And if you think we missed any red or green flags, there was a lot going on this episode, so we may have overlooked something. So thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.